jasoncharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. Arts and culture. You are listening to Lost Angeles with Laura Craven on jasoncharles.net. This is Laura Craven with Los Angeles on the jasoncharles.net podcast network. Today, we're welcoming back author and Marilyn Monroe historian, Gary Vitaco Robles, and we'll continue the conversation on his book, Cursum Proficio, Marilyn Monroe's Brentwood Hacienda, where she spent the last six months of her life. I'm very excited for part two of our conversation about Marilyn Monroe and what we can learn about the neighborhood that she lived and died in in Los Angeles. Welcome, Gary. It's it's great to be back. Thank you for inviting me back. Last time was fun. Yes, it certainly was. And it's great to see you again. Um, one thing I, I'm really excited about is to start off with your trip to Los Angeles that you were just planning on going to when we spoke last time. Correct. Correct. Yes. And then the most pressing question I have is, did you get to sit on the red velvet couch? Unfortunately, I did not sit on the red velvet couch. Um, I'm sorry, I was very uh, sad that I wasn't able to uh, connect it at the collector's home. I did see him at the events, but I didn't get to his, to his home. But I did um, have a, a midnight walk through Brentwood. Um, when it was very quiet and very dark. And um, I was able to have access to um, the properties surrounding the home uh, late at night, uh, which provided uh, more information to me. Mm -hmm. So there's a house on the street, which has a kitchen window that overlooks Fifth Helena Drive. And so at night with the lights on in, in that home, I was able to see the vantage point that it would present to Monroe's home. And that's where the neighbor saw uh, Robert Kennedy's open Cadillac come down the street. And it was very clear to me um, that anyone would be able to very clearly see a car turning down and, and the window was so huge and so close to the street that you could practically see the, the pores in the skin on uh, a passenger's face. Mm -hmm. Wow, well, that, that's fascinating. Huh. And, and that particular home just recently sold. So most folks believe that it will be raised for yet another superstructure um, on Carmelina. And I was able to see the other home, which uh, was the home of the Landau's, which was raised. And now there's an enormous home under construction near completion on the other corner. So the only two original homes that remain are the only two that are actually on Fifth Helena Drive, Maryland's on the left and the other residents on the right. Right. Wow. That's, it's really too bad. I mean, I understand people wanting to, to kind of upsize and take advantage of all the space that's available to them on a lot, but, you know, we're just kind of losing that original Los Angeles architecture. I agree with you. And the, and the neighborhood was a quiet neighborhood of mostly uh, one-story homes, um, unassuming homes, unpretentious homes, for the most part, at least on the fifth, on the Helenas. Um, and, and that really is changing. And I was able to take um, a stroll down the street behind Maryland's property on Danoon. 
And of course, we talked about her property. Right. It's very deep and it's terraced and it goes all right. the way down the valley. And so I was able to get a perspective um, from the street below where there was a, a family that had, and we'll probably talk about this today as well as a, the family was having a, a birthday party for the children and saw Monroe up on the hill. Um, right. Watching. Yes. I love that story. That was the Moseri family. Yes. Correct. Yes. yes. John and Joan. Yeah. No. So we'll definitely get into that story. Also, Gary, as a Marilyn Monroe historian, I'm interested to get your perspective on the new film Blonde that has been released since the time we spoke in the past. So since the reaction to that film has been quite intense, I am really interested to get your thoughts on Well, uh, I'll be happy to share them with you. And just as a tease, I will say that I watched the film during the recent hurricane that impacted Florida, where I reside. I watched it uh, the night of the hurricane. And um, just as a preview of what we'll later talk about it, I found that the film was more traumatic th than the hurricane experience for me. Wow. Interesting metaphor that you set yourself up for there, tuning in to watch <laughs> that. Okay, well, let's circle back to your trip to Los Angeles. I know that you were doing that in part to commemorate the 60th anniversary of Marilyn's death. And you, in addition to having access to the neighborhood when it was kind of quiet and late at night, you are also friends with um, someone who has a lot of, of artifacts that, that he was able to purchase in, at auction after her death. Is that Correct. Correct. Greg Schreiner. Yes. And I had contact with Scott Fortner, who has um, much of Monroe's archive in addition to her personal property. And, and he holds uh, many of Marilyn's financial documents, which depict uh, with great detail the uh, restoration of her home and all of the purchases associated with it. Wow. It must be. I mean, for you, it must just be thrilling to be able to get that close. Well, actually, actually, Scott um, handed me Marilyn's 1962 phone book, you know, which had the aroma of an old book and it had all of her hand notations. And it was very clear to see who she was really in contact with. You know, the, those who are actually listed in her phone book are likely the people who were truly her friends and associates. And so when we hear about accounts from people who claim to know her or who claim to have had close relationships with her, um, many of those people don't appear in the phone book. Wow. Very interesting that you have this tangible element of her life to actually, you know, have in your hands and look at this object that was part of her daily life, I'm sure. It's really a great piece of history. You know, it, it serves as a way to document who her contacts were and her uh, annotations are interesting as well. Um, you know, with personal comments related to some of the individuals or how they were significant in her life, in her own hand, and, you know, including her half sister, Bernice Miracle, who lived uh, here in Florida at the time. That's that's just incredible. Were there any other events or things that you participated in that commemorated the 60th? Yeah, the 60th uh, memorial service was held at uh, the Westwood Cemetery, now known as Pierce Brothers, and it had a very large uh, attendance. And uh, George Shakiris spoke 
uh, and he had filmed several musicals with Monroe at 20th Century Fox. And it was very nice to connect with him. He just celebrated his 90th birthday and he always shares beautiful stories of uh, his memories of Marilyn. So many of the people who knew her or who worked with her are no longer living. So his dedication to coming each year is always a treat. That's great. Another nice uh, event that was held was a luncheon that was hosted by the Maryland Remembered Fan Club. And it was held at the former Villanova restaurant, which is now the Rainbow Barn Grill. And this oh, was up on like, Sunset? On Sunset. And of course, you know, those who love uh, Monroe and DiMaggio know that it was the site of their, their blind date in March of 1952. So there was a, an event held there with uh, many folks in the Marilyn Monroe community. The interior looks very much the same. Um, it's uh, leather banquettes and like a dark burgundy. They look very aged. So I don't know if they're, you know, really from the early 50s when Monroe and DiMaggio were there, but they, they are, they're very old. The layout is still the same. The entryway has been moved to the side opposed to the front where it was. And the table where Monroe and DiMaggio had their blind date. It was a chaperone blind date with another couple, David March and his girlfriend. Um, but there's a plaque on the wall honoring uh, the site of the blind date. Wow, that just must have been really special to get yes, there with a group of people. And it's in front of this tremendous fireplace. So if the fireplace was burning that evening, it would have been a romantic location on Sunset Strip. Mm -hmm. It's incredible to think that Los Angeles would have fireplaces built in because although it, it does get cold, it's very limited how much how much cold there is here in the winter. But yeah, I'm sure that the um, the atmosphere must have been just sheer romance. And, yes, creates yeah. an ambiance. Yeah, yeah. Turn, just turn down the air conditioning. If right. <laughs> if it's creating the heat. <laughs> it's apparently also where um, Judy Garland and Vincent Minnelli uh, became engaged to each other. Wow. A so lot of a lot of romantic connections as it was a romantic secluded Italian restaurant at the time. <laughs> that is great. Wow. I really didn't know the history of that. So that's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, and I have to tell you the um the fettuccine alfredo is exceptional there. One of my favorites. I must check that out, right? That's that's where you you cash in all your carbs for the week. <laughs> Well, that's really great. I'm so glad that you had that opportunity to come out. Um, and we had touched on this at the end of part one, but we ran out of time. So I wanted to get into a conversation with you about Marilyn's association with architect Frank Lloyd Wright and his efforts to design a home for Marilyn and Arthur Miller on their property in Connecticut. You know, you so generously in your book include the plans for that. I think there's, there's two, well, four pages total of the plans that he drew up for them that weren't realized in Connecticut, but have been realized as part of a golf club and spa in Maui. And um, I've, you know, read up on that and how the designers and the architects, they are lovingly recreated from his plans, the beautiful, um, structure, which is kind of like a backwards L shape. And in Lloyd Wright's tradition, there, 
there's a big dome and a chandelier hangs from that. And I'm sure it's fascinating as a golf club and spa, but it would have been a very regal private residence, I'm sure. Spectacular, so, spectacular and ultra modern for mid-century. At the time. And what I love is that Marilyn would have her meetings with him at his office at the Plaza Hotel. And why? Because it, he was under construction with the Guggenheim at the time. So I just love how all these elements of history from you know these different locations are pulled together to tell the story of, yes. of what could have been. And, and when, you, when you consider both of them, I mean, they were both highly revolutionary and creative personalities. You know, Frank Lloyd Wright introduced organic architecture and open concept. And this was very radical from Victorian compartmentalization. And, and, and Monroe now was the post-war embodiment of femininity. She was kind of the, the new age and the, um, the actor studio method um, style acting opposed to more traditional uh, stage uh, styles of performing. So when these two personalities came together, their uh, eccentricity and their creativity just kind of blossomed and, and, and the design that resulted was spectacular. And so, you know, I traveled to Taliesin West in Scottsdale, Arizona to research this because uh, that architecture college, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, architectural college uh, holds his archive. And um, there was a woman there who managed the archive who was very helpful to me at the time. But, you know, the, the, this story just wasn't really told. Um, the first time I heard about the Frank Lloyd Wright Monroe connection was in Arthur Miller's autobiography, Time Bends. And so he doesn't really speak much of his long relationship and, and marriage to Marilyn Monroe, but he spends a considerable amount of time mentioning this home that that she wanted to offer him as a gift. And so I did some research and there's actually a Mike Wallace interview with Frank Lloyd Wright from 1957. And oddly, Mike Wallace brings up the topic of Miss Monroe as saying her architecture is extremely good architecture. And I think he was maybe relating to her physical form. And uh, Wright uh, uh, retorts very quickly that, you know, she's a very natural actress and a very good one. And uh, then they, they talk about these rumors at the time that, that Wright was um, going to design the home for them. And he kind of peddled back and say, he'd be very happy to design the home, but they, that the Millers hadn't asked him yet. And that was because the, uh, the cost of the home would have just been um, enormous. But when you look at what was going on in Monroe's life at the time, this was during her domestic period with Arthur Miller. And so they had sold Arthur Miller's home in Roxbury, Connecticut, where he wrote Death of the Salesman, and they had purchased uh, about 350 acres in Roxbury, and uh, it came along with an 18th century farmhouse, which would have required a lot of work. So their life was um, weekdays in the city and weekends in Connecticut. So this design that Frank Lloyd Wright created for Marilyn, and her name appears all over the plans. Oddly, Arthur Miller's name does not. It's Miss Monroe's bedroom and Miss Monroe's uh, conference room and sewing room. 
And so the design really reflected Monroe's priorities at that point, which were children and a husband. So there were grand scaled nurseries, like, like I said, a, a sewing room, a well-appointed study for Miller and a conference room for Marilyn Monroe Productions. And Arthur Miller reported that the renderings of the home actually included um, high back uh, conference room chairs and, and like an enormous one, which clearly would have been Monroe, you know, reigning at the head of the table at these conferences for Marilyn Monroe Productions. Throne, yeah. And so, um, you know, it is, it is a very, very grand design um, and Miller, you know, told the story of, of how it how it all came to be and that, you know, they the couple picked up um, uh, Frank Lord Wright from the plaza and they had to drive two hours into Connecticut and he was nearly 90 at the time and he he fell asleep in the back seat and the couple kind of smiled to each other. And then um, when they got there, you know, they viewed this beautiful property and the house was designed with lots of glass doors opening up to uh, views of the beautiful land. And so it, it would have been like on a crest of woodland where it would kind of rise. You know, some people have commented that the design was, you know, very curvaceous. It has a lot of, you know, circular rooms and curves that didn't have stairs. So the second story, which had the bedrooms in the nurseries, um, it was a ramp mm-hmm. that went to the second floor, not a lot of right angles. So, it, you know, it seemed to be maybe inspired by Marilyn's uh, physical form. Which kind of takes us back to the Mike Wallace comment. <laughs> <laughs> that all came around again. But, I, you know, when I viewed it, I, I see it more. It's very ultra modern and it seems like a spaceship. You know, it seems like, you know, more of a of a set design yeah. for a science fiction novel and it you know it, it would have had like a, a a screen that came down into the living room uh, and then would re- retract back up mm-hmm. it was truly phenomenal i think um at the time they thought the house you know it would have been like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, but miller thought it would be multiple times he thought the swimming pool alone would have been two hundred and fifty thousand. yeah I read that with uh, interest in your book, how it was kind of, you know, it was a huge endeavor, but it sounded like the swimming pool was kind of like the the last straw that, you know, made it end up not coming to fruition. And, and what was very interesting about it was, you know, this design um, was done probably in 1957. Monroe had just miscarried. And then in 1958, um, she miscarried again. So the reality of, of, of having children, un- unfortunately, was, was not to be, neither was this house, right. but the, the couple decided that they would renovate the farmhouse and, and Monroe uh, invested a lot of energy in uh, restoring that house from about 1957 until 1960, which she uh, did have some rather m- modern uh, furnishings, I understand. It was a very traditional farmhouse. It was um, 18th century, like I said, with beam ceilings. Uh, it was an old home with many uh, generations that had lived in it, but she furnished it in um, rather modern mid-century furniture. So maybe it was a bit of a melding of right. what um, she accepted as her fate and what uh, she envisioned that spectacular home to be. Maybe both of those visions came together mm-hmm. in her in her farmhouse. Right. 
I was going to say that I can appreciate Marilyn's choosing of Frank Lloyd Wright for this endeavor. I, I really think that, you know, she probably admired his work from years past. And what's interesting to me is that the neighborhood that she eventually settled in, in Brentwood, you know, one of the few Frank Lloyd Wright homes in Los Angeles, the Sturgis house, which is approximately one mile from her house on Helena Drive. You know, just in researching the Sturgis house, you, you know, quickly learn that this was kind of born of Frank Lloyd Wright's idea about an affordable, kind of forward looking design that didn't take up a lot of square feet, but blended into the environment, you know, like so many of his designs do. And, you know, I just have to think that, you know, maybe in some way that she was aware of that, it appealed to her. Um, And another part of the Sturgis House that I really like is that it was also born of this Usonian movement, which kind of, you know, in that time, Los Angeles seemed to be taken with this idea of utopia. Of course, you know, they were shot down by political opponents who thought any ideas like that were bordering way too closely on socialism. So, mm-hmm. you know, we can't, we can't go there at all. But And Marilyn, Marilyn's beliefs were, were very leftist leaning. Yes, you know, absolutely. Her, her associations were with uh, East Coast folks, um, Marxist folks, I guess you would say, many folks who were um, immigrants or descended from Eastern Europe. Um, she identified as the working class. She lived in poverty during the Depression. So um, she would have an affinity to this um, belief system and be drawn to those individuals. Right, definitely. And and you also touch on that in your book because her circle of friends in Mexico, where she went to, to source material for her home, these were kind of expats who left the United States and were living, you know, kind of under the belief system that appealed to them in Mexico, extremely left-leaning and... Included, including Fred Vanderbilt Fields, who was actually a blue blood. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he was, he got a moniker as kind of a, a, a blue, a blue blood born communist, I think is mm-hmm. the way he was, he was uh, regarded. And, um, and so, you know, also those who provided Marilyn's uh, psychoanalysis, you know, her treatment providers, all um, originated from Europe or had European descent um, and shared some of these beliefs. And there was a large um, community um, in the Los Angeles Psychoanalytic Society uh, who lived in in the uh, area surrounding Brentwood um, and around UCLA in the Westwood area who uh, had these beliefs as well. And many of them were Monroe's friends and uh, at least one I know was was her neighbor. Right. Yes. You do mention that in the the neighbor section of the book that there was a psychoanalyst that lived there. And speaking of Marilyn's neighbors, at the time that she lived on Helena Drive, you know, it was a small community, but she did know her neighbors. And um, you had touched on the story earlier about the Moseri family that was having a, a birthday brunch out in their backyard and noticed her watching the festivities. They, they noticed her and then she became aware that they were aware that she was eavesdropping. 
Um, and so it, it, from their perspective, it looked like she became embarrassed and turned and left. And um, after Monroe died, they told um, her housekeeper, Eunice Murray, that they had wished that they had extended uh, an invitation to her and that that kindness might have made a difference to her in that moment. Right. Okay. Um, but, she, but she was embarrassed uh, for, for watching maybe too long. But, you know, and from her perspective, she's watching a young family with children celebrate a birthday. And this is something that she would have loved to have experienced herself with her own children. Right, right. Well, also one thing that you touch on in the book is after Marilyn saw the house and decided that she really would like to purchase it and live there, she did have the neighbors vetted and to determine, you know, who they were, what their professions were, if this would be a good fit for her. And um, maybe you could expand a little bit on, you know, the type of people that were living in the neighborhood at the time, what she, what she learned about them. Sure. Well, there, there are three other homes on the street aside from Monroe's. And so and interestingly, this was a neighborhood of uh, educators. And so the house directly next door to her, the couple that owned that house was Ralph Barnes and um, Mary Goody Kuntz Barnes. And they had uh, two adult daughters who did not live with them, but both of their daughters were teachers. And Mr. Barnes was Professor um, at the University of California, Los Angeles. And Mary, his wife, she had attended Cornell and um, she was an associate professor, but she also was the head of home economics at University High School. And that's where uh, Monroe attended school. She attended many schools in her life. Uh, and because of her multiple moves, mm -hmm. um, sometimes more than one school in a year. And so she has uh, a connection. There was another uh, gentleman um, who lived on the corner. And this was the house I was describing to you that had the kitchen. That was um, David Patterson and his wife, Emily Mar Patterson, and he taught at Emerson Junior High School, and Monroe did attend that junior high school, and his obituary states that he had a 36-year um, career, including, you know, being a principal, but I don't know if it truly would have overlapped uh, Monroe. It could have, because they were roughly about, about the same age, mm -hmm. and um, he had two adult children, and uh, his daughter actually was uh, probably about 20 attending college and she was living with the parents when Monroe lived there. And on the other corner was Abe uh, Landau and um, his wife and he worked for Edison Brothers. And I kind of know that company only because in college I worked for Chess King retailer and I don't know Edison Brothers owned Chess King and the female version which was Foxmore back in the 80s mm -hmm. and so um, the, these neighbors become significant uh, in 1982 because when the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office reinvestigated Monroe's case all of the neighbors um, from 1962 continued to reside on that block. Wow 25 you know, some, years yeah, later. later. And, um, you know, some of the spouses, uh, you know, had, I think one spouse had been deceased, but, um, you know, the, the families were still there. Well, let's get into what Marilyn's typical day might be at her house. In chapter eight of the book, you talk about her daily routine. I know that, you know, she had her own production company. She was a, a very busy woman. She had a large social circle. I know that 
you know, this home, she looked at it as a place of solace, but also where she could get things done. So um, if you could kind of walk us through what your interpretation of her typical day might be. Well, you know, this this period of time uh, overlaps with some significant events in her life. So um, she moves into the house in March of 1962, right after the Golden Globe Awards. And of course, this is where she spends uh, her last month. So, so much of the time was spent in the restoration of the home um, with uh, contractors coming in and deliveries being made um, and coordinating it all with her housekeeper, Eunice Murray's assistance. So um, her a production on Something's Got to Give didn't um, begin until um, mid-April when she, when she had costume tests for that film and then it, it went into production in, in May. So what we know about Monroe is that she, she had um, a friendship with a, a doctor by the name of G.W. Campbell and she would have weekly phone conversations with him. And he recommended to her reading the book, Your Key to Happiness. And so she was having telephone conversations with him. We know that she kept in touch with her former father-in-law, Isidore Miller, who lived in Brooklyn, and they had a weekly call. And um, a lot of her time, her, her private time was spent with the Greenson family, uh, Ralph Greenson being her therapist, uh, he, who conducted uh, psychotherapy or at that time psychoanalysis sessions in his home and she was interacting with his wife and adult children. So he, the children came to the home. She would roast uh, chestnuts in the fireplace and um, she went apartment hunting with Danny Greenson and with um, Joan. Uh, and Joan started college that summer and Monroe was part of a surprise birthday party for her. And um, she was very involved in the life of those children. In fact, um, Joan Greenson tells a great story of um, her friend and her friend's father who kind of put her down and embarrassed her in front of her peers. And Monroe was kind of outraged and very protective of Joan. And um, she wanted to set up Joan on a quasi date or just have Marlon Brando come and escort her to something in front of her friends and her friend's family as a way to reestablish um, her dominance in, in, in the situation. And uh, Marlon Brando wasn't available. So Marilyn uh, made sure her hair was done and her makeup was on and, and wore uh, a dress uh, typical of her public persona and made an appearance at an event with Joan with uh, all of her friends and the friend's father, and then kind of made quite an effort to say, okay, we need, but the car is ready. We need to go because we're going out on the town, Joan, you and I. And Joan really, really appreciated that. And um, there was a birthday party at Joan's new apartment and Marilyn um, did get dressed up in her Marilyn getup, as she would refer to it. And, um, you know, this, this was the, the dance craze summer, the mashed potato and the twist and the limbo rock and all of those early 60s dances. And so all of the, and Marilyn apparently was a really good twister. She would teach the friends of you know, the, the Lawford children in the family room how to do the twist. She even apparently taught Robert Kennedy that at an event at the Lawford. So she was also invited to the Greensons for, you know, they pretty much held salons on Sundays 
where they had chamber music and discussions. So, you know, again, a lot of her time is spent at other people's homes. Mm-hmm. Um, she uh, does uh, begin the renovation early on in March. And I, I know the day of her costume test for Something's Got to Give, she discovered some tiles around the fireplace that were covered over in plaster. And she was very excited about that. She spent a lot of time on the garden um, and, and selecting shrubs and having um, her uh, her gardener install some of those. She built a brick courtyard between her guest house and her um, uh, kitchen and had a tree planted there. Her um, African-American maid from the studio was a, a good friend to her. And this woman attended the funeral. And when you look at the, the photograph of this woman's face when Marilyn is being interred in the crypt, you you see, you really see her pain. Um, and uh, this woman, Florence, and her husband uh, was a police officer. They had loaned Marilyn a bridge table. Um, you know, small little details like that. Her friends were the folks who worked at the at the studio. There's really a wonderful story by a friend of mine. He's become my friend through my research, Jim Go. His dad, James, was a master electrician at 20th Century Fox Studios. And so he kind of grew up with Marilyn and she wanted his father to do an assessment of the wiring in her home. And so she invited them both over for lunch. And uh, Jim tells me that he went with his dad and Marilyn made him tuna sandwiches and and chips and Coca-Cola. And she took them on a tour of the house and she was very excited about it, especially the sunroom and walked them all around. And um, I think they they saw her shot glass collection. And I guess his father, collected uh, shot glasses and she had some duplicates. So she, she gave um, Jim Jr. her duplicate shot glasses, which he still has. So it's a very, a very sweet story. When, when I corresponded with uh, her internist, Hyman Engelberg, he told a great story of bringing his son over when he um, did a home visit to Maryland uh, that spring. And uh, the, the, the boy said he was hungry and she cooked him some scrambled eggs in, in the kitchen. So, you know, there's lovely little stories like that. You know, she she brought her um, uh, her Maltese moth honey um, to, to right. Brentwood. And um, I love that. And name. there's a lot of, uh, you know, the, the dog was the dog was really a gift from Patricia Lawford, but it's morphed into a gift from Frank Sinatra so that it so that the name moth could be connected to Sinatra for mafia. So I, I don't really know that oh, the wow. genesis of all of that, but I know that, you know, the breeder of the dog was actually the mom of um, Natalie Wood, but that was, that was Patricia uh, Newcomb's gift. So that, so that Marilyn would never be alone following her divorce. Right. Um, so, you know, a lot of, a lot of her, you know, her time in the house, like what else happened there was couturiers from uh, Jean Louise. They would have come into that home to do the fittings for the JFK birthday gala gown. And one of the bedrooms was turned into a dressing room since the rooms were so small and it had a, a threefold uh, mirror, you know, a huge mirror. And so they were um, doing the dress fittings for that particular dress. Um, of course, we know that Marilyn's last uh, interview for Life Magazine with Richard Merriman actually took place in the home uh, over the course of several days. and. Uh, Miriam talks about, you know, they got hungry at one point and rummaged through the refrigerator, which was, you know, basically empty. And then um, a photographer by the name of Alan Grant came out in early July to photograph Monroe to accompany this article. 
and a lot of the furnishings were not present, but the pictures of Monroe um, uh, that accompanied it in Life magazine were actually taken in the dining room. The table had not yet arrived, but there's, you can see Monroe sitting there by an open window and you can see an ivy covered wall behind her, one of her paintings set off to the side. So she was photographed in that home. Uh, we know that she shopped for furniture at um, Bill Alexander's Mart and uh, her new bedside table arrived the day that she died, but it never made it in the room. Um, she used a uh, the Cary Cadillac company um, for her transportation. Yeah, and Azure Book, it has so many details about, you know, these last months, days, the weeks. I mean, I was just struck by the last 35 days of her life. She had 28 meetings with Dr. Greeson, and she'd had a surgical procedure in late July that she was recovering from. And she had this, you know, apparent impending marriage or remarriage to Joe DiMaggio. If that's yeah, and that that's actually... that's still somewhat speculative. But um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, clearly they were um, DiMaggio and Monroe were were t- together um, that that last year. You know, beginning um, in, in in Christmas of 1960 through 61 and into 62. Um, kind of on and on and off romantically, but still, you know, very much um, spiritually uh, connected. Definitely, he was he was a visitor in the home. He kept his uh, his pajamas there. And that particular weekend when Marilyn died, he was in San Francisco at a charity game. But he was he was a frequent visitor. So obviously connected to he sent flowers to her crypt weekly for 20 years. Correct. And so perhaps we should move on to the the blonde film that was released in September. I know that, you know, it was highly anticipated. I, I think a lot of people did not realize or think that it was going to be this fictionalized retelling of the Joyce Carol Oates book from 2000. And we're hoping for something perhaps, you know, just more realistic about her life and times. But it exacerbates some of the more troubling and challenged times in her life to such a graphic extent that people, they stopped watching it midway. I'm not really sure if it was released theatrically. Briefly, very briefly. Okay. But, um, you know, and I looked up like 42% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's not, you know, it's pretty low, but it's not the worst. And it does have its champions and think that it's this you know, epitome of art. And um, it did get, you know, an extremely long standing ovation at the Venice Film Festival. So I'm interested in, in your perspective on that. Well, you know that I'm a, I'm a licensed mental health counselor, and my, my background is uh, in trauma informed care. So I have worked with individuals, children, and adults over the years who have survived sexual abuse and physical abuse and neglect and horrible, uh, adverse childhood experiences. And so, you know, I'm viewing this film, not just as a Marilyn Monroe historian, but also as a trauma-informed therapist. And so my impression of this film is that it's, it's an example of abuse porn. And I know that's probably a very uh, strong statement to make, but, you know, I, I know that the material is based on a fictional novel and that that book was written back in 2000 and um, it was it has already been adapted into a television 
a mini series with uh, Poppy Montgomery, which uh, and that version of it was very different than this one. But the original novel by uh, Joyce Carol Oates has a disclaimer in the beginning. And she says that it is not a biography. It is completely fiction. It's created from the author's imagination and it's loosely based on characters who have counterparts in Monroe's life, but that all the characterizations and, and the incidents in, in the book are the product of the author's imagination and no way, you know, treat this as a biography of Monroe. So I really wish that that disclaimer had been attached to this second version as well as a disclaimer about how this film might trigger people who have a history of trauma. And I think they have a responsibility in doing that because the film was probably the most graphic example I've ever seen. You know, I, I would say that the, the justification, I, I really believe that maybe the director and the actress did not realize that it was fiction because they seem to revert back and forth in their defense of the film and saying, well, you know, it's only based on, you know, it's fiction, so it doesn't really depict her. So we can pretty much do whatever we want if we just cast her as a character or, you know, but really this is the story. We, we, we want to show how traumatized she was and, and we want to send the message that she was uh, exploited and abused by people. Mm -hmm. But what they do in this film is that it seems to have a fixation on De degradation and abuse and sexual violence. And there seems to be like a sadistic fixation on it. And, you know, I, there's been some really effective films that I think do a good job about depicting sexual violence and, and child abuse and rape. And they, they do it in a way that the impact and the message is there without making you experience it themselves. I, I couldn't tolerate it. I don't have a history of, of trauma myself, um, you know, serious trauma or sexual trauma, but it didn't seem to have a message. And, you know, Monroe's true story is dramatic enough. And if you tell her story, you could tell a story about the impact of abuse. You can tell a story about um, uh, suffering from mental illness. You can tell a story about, you know, what it was like for a woman in the film industry, which was misogynistic and had male dominance and power and uh, exploitation. I mean, all, all of those things are, are true, but um, you can do it in such a way that isn't sadistic and um, fixated on um, mm -hmm. violence and sex being uh, mixed together. Right, right. Well, exactly. Well, I, you know, I appreciate your take on that. I mean, not only as a Marilyn Monroe historian, but as a mental health professional, it, you know, it really informs how it could be, you know, traumatizing for people that are working through their own trauma, you know, and oh, yes, um, viewer beware. Absolutely. Again, I had a very strong reaction. I, I do see that the that the filmmakers had great talent in their ability to use cinematography and um, creativity and recreations, you know, all of that was, I'm sure, very, very brilliant. Right. And that's a common thread that I've come across, you know, across the internet is just how beautifully shot. Yeah, they did film in the house and um, wow. they were given 
the access to the home by the current owners. And I do know that the door to the master bedroom has been repositioned in recent years. And so in, in this version, it seemed like it was brought back to where it was, or that was created through CGI. But, but even that level of um, accuracy was effective in that particular scene. But by that point, it was very hard for me to watch. And I would think I saw all of that on fast forward. Wow. That really offended many of the fans. You know, I, I saw lots of postings on my page about uh, them perceiving that as, as a level of disrespect of uh, filming in the actual room where the woman took her last breath, that it was necessary to do that in, in her own home, opposed to recreating that in a, in a set. So many decisions were made to get to the, the end result. Well, many people will, will believe that this is Monroe's story. You know, many years ago, um, following Monroe's death, I think we had a much more clear picture of who she was. And all these years later, with all of her um, documentation and her journals going to auction, we really can document in detail so much of her life. So we really should know more of an accurate version of who this woman really was. But I think we've gotten really far away from it. I I think um, the culture doesn't really know who she is anymore. But I think what will happen as a result of this film is that um, there'll be a push for folks, uh, folks who are um, historians um, and have access to to the truth about Monroe. Um, I think they will be stepping forward and creating depictions that really honor her life and tell her remarkable story with accuracy. There's there's still an opportunity to do Maryland justice in a way that's dignified and meaningful. So I hope someone hears that and um, is interested in bringing that to fruition. Well, and as you have done throughout the years, you know, with all the work and the effort research that you've put into your work, Gary, I mean, I think that people who are reading or listening to what you've documented about Maryland can learn a lot. I know I certainly have. So that's very kind of you to say, and I, and I'd like to think so. I'd like to think that folks will do the extra work and read um, well-sourced material um, and really get to the real story, which is really what sh- we, we should do about anything that we're interested in. We should be very vigilant about um, what we choose, especially what we choose as, as, as entertainment, you know, and when abuse porn becomes entertainment. Mm, That's where it crosses the line for me. Right. Well, as we move into the the final part of our discussion here today, Gary, I wanted to ask you about the third book in your Icon Trilogy and where you are with that. I know that um, you're anticipating publication uh, very soon. Correct. Yeah, it's taking longer than than I thought, um, which often happens in the post writing process. So right now it's being typeset, but some of the the um, unintended delays were helpful because I was able to obtain new information, which uh, made it to the galleys. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, I'm really looking forward to reading that because I know that the extent of your research and, you know, just the beauty and care with which you write about this subject is, you know, it's just so informative. And are you also continuing on with the podcast? Yes, we can. We concluded the season of the podcast, uh, Marilyn Behind the Icon, which is at behindtheicon.com. Our, our most recent episode was the telling of uh, Monroe's relationship with Ella Fitzgerald. 
um, and it talks about the, the course of their friendship and it culminates into when they both performed together at Madison Square Garden for President Kennedy's birthday salute. And so that podcast is uh, a dramatic adaptation of Icon. Um, it goes back and forth in time from the beginning of Monroe's life to the end of her life. Um, and it also has a companion podcast called Norma Jean Discovering Truths in which myself and the other two co-producers talk about the backstory of each episode. And we just recently introduced a third podcast within the podcast, um, which is the investigation, which is um, just clarifying misinformation about the circumstances of Monroe's death. And debunking a lot of the the myths and the murder conspiracy theories. Wow. And can we listen to all of these through that same website, Behind the Icon? Yeah, behindtheicon.com is the platform in which you can access the dramatic series, the backstory, and the investigation. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that, that's fascinating. And I'm, I'm looking forward to catching up on all that. Um, I appreciate so much, Gary, you taking the time to come and, and do this part two with us, because, you know, as we had mentioned in our first episode together, we just couldn't cover everything and all the details, you know, all at once. And the opportunity to discuss subsequently the film that was released in that time, I think is very informative. So thank you so much for your perspective and your insight. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you for having me back. It's it's always a privilege and an honor to have conversations with folks who are committed to um, history and uh, accuracy and good research and um, take a scholarly approach to a topic. Um, I really appreciate that, especially in the media today. We have so many choices, but you are presenting something of, of great quality. Um, and I love being a part of um, high quality uh, entertainment. That's great. Well, you're very kind and it's just wonderful to have you here. Much, much appreciated. And I know that our paths will definitely cross again. So I hope so. Thanks so much, Gary. And don't forget to subscribe to Los Angeles wherever you get your podcast or live and direct on jasoncharles.net. And on the page for this episode, we will provide a link for you to order Cursum Proficio or to pre-order the third book in Gary's Icon Trilogy. For Los Angeles on the jasoncharles.net podcast network, this is Laura Craven. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Los Angeles with Laura Craven on jasoncharles.net. jasoncharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep. Very, very deep.